0: Hey! Kareem Sirajuddin here, founder of Nude Human Consulting. The Coffee with Kareem podcast aims to provide Muslims and people of all backgrounds a space to share their life gifts, meet dynamic guests, and enhance the human experience one cup of coffee at a time. Sit back and sip. <sighs> Episode 16, Sexuality and Irritology in Islam. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. Today I have an esteemed guest, Habib Akande. He is a British-born writer and historian of Nigerian descent. He is the author of five published books on race, erotic Muslim literature, and Afro-Brazilian history. He is currently working on producing a documentary about being black and Muslim in Brazil. He graduated from Kingston University, as well as studied Islamic law and Islamic history at Al-Azhar, High school and university brother Habib. Thank you so much for coming on the show today
1: By to me brother. How are you?
0: Alhamdulillah. How are you? uh, Is it too late over there in the UK? I'm assuming you're not having coffee with me right now
1: (laughs) No, it's more like um, dinner time in London now.
0: I see I see. Are you a coffee drinker?
1: I'm more of a tea drinker and hot chocolate drinker to be honest with you. Oh
0: mashallah sounds good Yeah, I should add that to the list hot chocolate first of all hats off to you the book you wrote a taste of honey sexuality and Erotology in islam i was like so happy to find this book and i first learned about it through facebook Um, as you may or may not know i do a lot of uh, couples work with muslims exclusively and sexuality is always a very important primal uh, need amongst men and women and i love how you put this wonderful almost like the first manual, at least in the English language that I'm aware of, of really understanding sexuality in the Islamic tradition. And you also use a lot of sources from contemporary science and psychology. Um, And I thought it was very well put together. But I'm very curious, what made you write a book called A Taste of Honey, Sexuality and Irritology in Islam?
1: Well, whilst I was in Egypt, when I was in Azhar and studying, um, I came across a number of books written by well-renowned Muslim scholars like Imam Ali Syouti, who wrote a number of books talking about sexuality within Islamic framework. And I was quite shocked by this because I, I thought this was the type of books we needed in the English language. Um, and there was a famous hadith related in both Bukhari and Muslim, in which the Prophet Sallallahu used an expression mean, taste the honey, in which a woman went to the Prophet, peace be upon him, and complained that her husband wasn't able to satisfy her and she wanted a divorce. And the prophet ﷺ used the phrase did you taste his honey and did he taste your honey I did you consummate the marriage and it's a very beautiful phrase and Arabic expression which the prophet ﷺ used and that hadith itself was used as like the foundation for a number of muslim scholars who spoke about the importance of sexual pleasure both for the man and the woman as so i wanted to pay homage to that particular um, hadith and use it as like the foundation to hopefully try and revive the tradition of talking about Sexuality and sex-positive um, discussions within Islamic because um, i think it's very important.
0: Right. No, I love that. I'm so glad you're trying to revive this balance, and of course, show that it is an essential component of Islamic literature and history, isn't it? Most definitely. Most definitely.
1: Imam Al-Suyuti—he wrote over 24 books about sexual relations and sexual conduct, and that—and this is a—we know him for as being a great theologian and as a jurist, a faqih, but we don't know that he also spoke about sexual relations, and not just talking about the halal and the haram, because unfortunately, many of the books that we see, many of the, like you could say, the religious books that talk about sex, just talk about what is permitted and what is forbidden, the halal and haram. not. Whereas a lot of the early Muslim scholars, their approach to talking about this topic was approaching it as not only really talking about what is permitted and what's not permitted, but they acted as, you could say, social commentators of their time. They were talking about the various sexual practices that people undertook those that which were within the confines of islam and those that that weren't weren't within the confines of islam and i think that type of approach is something which unfortunately a lot of our religiously inclined muslims have kind of lost so they just want to stick to like very um dogmatic approaches of talking about sex when in in reality the early muslim scholars they were more you can say like contemporary um sociologists so to speak as um, which is again which i think it's important that we try to revive
0: absolutely absolutely i mean I, i've just been shocked by the fact that some Muslims, mashallah, I mean, we're, you know, majority of, of Muslims, at least in in the United States, there's a very strong emphasis on education and economic success. And, you know, you have brilliant lawyers and doctors and engineers. But then how many people do I know who got married? Their parents never once talked to them about sexuality and the wedding night and what it means to be in an intimate relationship with one spouse. Right. It's like we have this very twisted, impractical um, immature way of dealing with sexuality. It's like, we're not going to talk about it. You're not allowed to talk to girls. You're not allowed to talk to men. There's no sex before marriage. And you just shut up and practice your religion and, and get your degrees and then, bismillah, we get you married and go figure it out. And then we wonder why there's so much trauma and distortion in in these aspects of marital life i mean it's it's is this something similar that is happening in the uk from your observation or are you unable to comment about that
1: no it's very much happening in the uk but one thing i've noticed that majority of the muslims in the uk are of of south asian descent and um, obviously i grew up in a predominantly nigerian mosque but our attitude in terms of approaching sensuality and sex was a bit more open and liberal it's a muslim problem but again it depends on I would say, like the Muslim's background, their cultural background, because I've noticed amongst a lot of, unfortunately, South Asian and you can say some Arab Muslims, where they don't really have these type of conversations with their parents or even amongst their friends. Whereas um, the community I grew up in, um, which are predominantly uh, people of African descent, it was quite common to have these kind of conversations. When did the Muslims become very prude, prudish? We had a rich um, history, literature tradition, talking about these types of issues to do with sex and sexuality and sexuality when the British um, colonised much of the Muslim world in the 19th century, they brought with them, brought with them their understanding of morality. And the British, during the Victorian times, were known to be very prude, extremely prude. And they, you can say that that was something that unfortunately many of the Muslims took upon themselves when they approached the topic of sex and sexuality. Again, that made, led me to realise, OK, this phenomenon is a recent phenomenon, because again, prior to like the British colonised, like I said, um, colonised the Muslim world, a lot of the Muslims have quite a liberal attitude in terms of talking about sex and sexuality, whether you're looking at the Middle East, whether you're looking at the Indian subcontinent, or whether you're looking at much of um, North Africa.
0: So your book is called A Taste of Honey, Sexuality and Irritology in Islam. What's the difference between sexuality and irritology? Can you define those for us and and help us understand the differences and commonality?
1: Uh, Sexuality refers to the human capacity for sexual feelings and also refers to one sexual orientation, but for the purpose of my book, I was mainly referring to. I use sexuality in the subtitle, referring to the human capacity for um, for sexual feelings, however it manifests in different ways. Okay, so it's not just sexual orientation, because unfortunately nowadays, when people think of sexuality, they generally think of just either heterosexuality or homosexuality, as opposed to the other definition being like the capacity for um, sexual feelings. With regards to erotology, um, the definition of erotology is the study of sexual desire and sexual behavior. Erotology is uh, comprised of two words. Um, just speaking about the etymology of the word, um, from eros, which is a Greek word meaning desire, and ology, meaning the study of. So the study of sexual desire. That's what erotology basically means. There's a Islamic science called al like the knowledge of sex, and that is translated as like um, erotology or sometimes it's considered to be like sexology. I also want to add, although obviously I've, I've, I've subtitled my book Erotology in Islam, um, there's a difference between erotology and the modern. Sexology is considered to be an objective study of sexual conduct, whereas erotology is it's not, it's considered to be subjective um, sexology. Sexology just looks at human practices without understanding the, the wisdoms and, or even you can say the philosophy of why people behave in a certain way whereas with erotology it's looking at obviously it's looking at sexual practices but it's also like you could say it's giving an opinion
0: Got it. Thank you so much for clarifying. So according to um, irritology, this is the idea of studying what what is desirable, correct? What what makes us feel that alluring attraction, that magnetic force. So sexuality from an Islamic perspective is going to also be anchored in fiqh or Islamic law and the application of it. So that means that whether you're Nigerian, Chinese, Egyptian, or American Muslim, sexuality according to Islam is going to define for you what you're allowed. Allowed to do and not allowed to do right so for example anal sex is going to be haram for everybody it doesn't matter what culture you're from that's according to sexuality in islam but then erotology would be something like okay but when it comes to this culture maybe for instance part of the eroticism is you know feet or hair or you know the arms or these types of things so there's going to be perhaps emphasis of what is considered erotic in one culture versus another culture even though they might both be Muslim.
1: Exactly, that you hit the nail on the head. And the reason why I think it's important and people understand the differences between the two is because some Muslims, when they pick up works written by Muslim scholars and they're speaking about erotology and they're speaking about what maybe some men prefer in terms of um, physical attributes in a woman, some people think this is what Islam says. So a number of the early Muslim scholars, they will speak about, again, mainly within um, the Middle East, they'll speak about the beauties of white women and how they like fair-skinned women or women with dark black hair. Right. And some people pick, up, pick pick this up and think, oh, this is a religion just endorsing only white women and saying that white women are the epitome of beauty and not understanding that this is speaking from um, a perspective, a subjective perspective of what people at the time found desirable and attractive in a, in a woman. So I think it's important that people... I'm and, and understanding that there's a difference between what a particular Muslim from a certain culture considers to be attractive in a woman compared to what Islam says. Right, right. No, that's a very good point. That's important. And that's why I wanted to clarify because unfortunately what's happening in the UK, I'm not sure if you've got the same phenomenon in America, is that there are some um people who are you can say you could say like Pan Africanists or black nationalists who are picking some books or some passages from some Muslim scholars' works where maybe they talk about the beauties of white women and they're saying, Oh look, the religion is racist because this scholar is speaking about how white women are desirable, the best women, blah blah blah, and, and they're relating verses of poetry and they're not understanding that yes, this yes, this is come from the works of a Muslim scholar, but he's speaking about what he or the people at Islam consider to be the most desirable in terms of like women, whether it's skin colour, their weight. Muslims of today we understand the context and the difference between sexuality and erotology, which we spoke about a little bit earlier.
0: Right. So, erotology definitely includes the subjective desire or preference, which has nothing to do with actual sacred law. I mean, I know many people who don't find, for example, white people or white, very fair-skinned people to be attractive, or they prefer, you know, different body masses versus other ones. I mean, that's really up to the personal preference, and usually that will reflect common patterns of eroticism and desire within the culture that they're from so that's great clarification now based on your book and i do encourage everyone listening to read it and check it out but maybe if you're still not married you should wait (laughs) because it can get a little rich but um sorry to cut you off
1: to be honest i mean that's something that a number of people have said and i've said that i think as Muslims, again obviously if there's some passages which are a bit too explicit or people are not comfortable reading then again don't read it but i think we as muslims we need to adopt a more of a an adult, uh, a more more of a mature perspective when we're talking about sex, because before someone gets married, they know about sex. let's be honest with ourselves, and unfortunately in many Muslim communities that there's a number of people that are engaging in sexual conduct before marriage. So to have this idea that until the person gets married, they're gonna um, start reading about what Islam says about sex. I think that's something which is doing a disservice not only to them, but also to the religion. Because again, just because someone, I mean, when you watch a number of these Hollywood films, after, I mean in every film there's got like a sex scene so people are aware of sexual relations and things like that again if there's some passages which some people find a bit too explicit or problematic then I would say don't read it but I would still not just my book but I would still encourage people to kind of understand what the early Muslims and what Islam says in terms of our, um, the approach towards sex and having a sex positive framework rather than waiting until kind of they get married because by that time their mindset and their attitudes towards sex and women might be might be might not be correct and i think that's an issue that i wanted to kind of talk about in the book because that's something that unfortunately a lot of muslims have got this attitude towards women which i don't think is very islamic in a sense of once you get married the woman's supposed to do what do what you say in terms of fulfill your sexual desires and stuff like that rather than understanding it's more about mutual um, pleasure and mutual benefit
0: right no i think that's a I th- you know that's a good correction and um you know i i totally agree i mean i think we do need healthy islamic sexual education Because I know for a fact that 75% plus of Muslims today aren't learning with any Islamic source or guidance. They're learning from pornography, they're learning online, they're learning from their friends, they're learning from just doing premarital relationships, right? So, of course, you know, I think this is a book that can certainly begin this discourse um, amongst our communities. And, you know, I guess I was saying that more so because I don't want people to, um, you know, come around and say, oh, Kareem told us to read this book and and somebody might be a 15-year-old listener out there and then their parents will be mad at me. (laughs) But, you know, but I definitely agree that we need Islamic sexual education that's healthy and rooted in our tradition and i think this book is is a wonderful collection of of doing that um or at least starting this subject matter which who knows how long it'll take before it's actually part of our seminars and courses at the local mosque i mean we're still talking about the same things at least you know from what i see in in our messages but i haven't seen for example a course that talks about sexuality yet you know and um inshallah this this can be something that people start to harness in their local communities but let's let's talk more about from your research how is how does islam see sex is sex good maybe you can share a couple of points as to why you think um we need to have a more holistic understanding of sex according to islam and how does it even have spiritual benefit
1: okay so from, from the islamic perspective um sex is 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 a blessing from allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it could be a means of earning reward with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there's a famous hadith in which the Prophet, wa sallam, just paraphrasing, he spoke about that saying subhanahu wa is a sadaqah, a form of charity. And he said that even in one of your in, even in, in your private parts, there's a, there's a charity. And when the companions asked the Prophet, peace be upon him, are you saying that if we were to have sexual relations, like in terms of like, if we were to enjoy sexual relations with our wives, we're going to be rewarded for that? Then the Prophet wa sallam, said that if you was to have sexual relations with someone in, in a haram fashion, you will be punished with it, you will be punished by that. So it's, it's, it's educating them, it's in, in telling them that we've all got this passion, we've all got this desire for sex, but if you engage in sexual relations in that which is obviously illegitimate, then obviously you're liable to be punished. So if you engage in, in sexual relations in, in in the correct framework, i.e. within marriage, Allah, inshallah, is going to reward you for it. So in terms of our understanding of sex and even the word nikah. From the Arabic word, the, the Arabic word the primary mean, meaning is sexual intercourse, the, and that was the understanding of the early Muslims that the reason why they get married, the primary reason is to enjoy, se- is to sexual pleasure, but obviously mutual sexual pleasure. And so the understanding of marriage was to do with sex. Whereas now, when you think about a lot of Muslims, when they think about marriage, even in the Western understanding, it's either procreation or like, to, yeah, more or less procreation to the start of a family. So the early Muslims, this is something that I wanted to show was. Their understanding about sex was pleasurable, and that's why there was there's like over a hundred words, a hundred different words that the Arabs used to um, for sex and, and their sexual organs. When obviously when Islam came, they codified it and they made it. They said, okay, sexual relations. We understand that with a number of people, this is like the highest source of pleasure, but it has to be done within the correct frame, framework. Obviously, if it's done outside the correct framework, which is obviously marriage, then that's something obviously which is which is detrimental to your own self. And something, another quick hadith I want to quickly relate is when Aisha, when she spoke about, she said, if the if the first verse of the Qur'an was revealed, was saying, do not drink alcohol, do not fornicate, people would have continued to fornicate and would continue, continue to drink wine. Whereas the first verses, the only verses were speaking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the um, paradise, Jannah and Nahr, the hellfire. So people's hearts were attached to Allah and to the hereafter. And then when the verses came, were revealed, speaking about, do not fornicate, do not um, drink wine. It was easy for people to give up these acts. And that's something, again, I think as Muslims, yes, we know that sex um, Islam is a sex-positive religion. It speaks about the benefits that you can have in terms of pleasing pleasing your wife and likewise for the wife to please her husband. But ultimately, everything we're doing is for the sake of Allah. So if you've got in the back of your mind, and even as a man, so if you are pleasing your wife, and there's another hadith which the Prophet ﷺ, he said, before you have relations with your wife, send... Send messages, and when they asked what is a sweet messages, he said sweet talk and kisses. It's it's about having this positive attitude, especially with the men, because a number of these hadiths were addressed to the men, in, informing them that don't be like a camel that goes to his wife, you know, relinquishes first and then leaves. So you have to be someone that's trying to satisfy your wife as much as as before you think about trying to satisfy yourself. Not only Muslim men, but men in general have this attitude that sex is just about themselves. Even if we look in the West and the Western world, up until the 20th century. A lot of Western academics and, and in the medical profession, they believed that a woman couldn't have any sexual desire or even have an orgasm. And they labelled women um, as hysterics. And it's only in the last like 100, 150 years that now they've accepted that women can not only have an orgasm, can ejaculate, can enjoy sexual relations. When this was something that was affirmed by the Prophet Muhammad 1400
0: years ago yeah no i love that i mean that's one of the things i've always appreciated about islam is this frame framing of sexuality as a worship and not only as something that you do to please yourself but it's also an act of service right, for your wife or for your husband. And uh, I, I also work with a lot of brothers who are recovering from pornography addiction. And what's sad about those situations is many of our brothers and some sisters, they have now associated sexual pleasure and orgasms with shame and guilt and feeling horrible about themselves. And, you know, you have to remind them that imagine a space where you're enjoying sexuality and having orgasms, and it's associated with It's guilt-free. It's associated with worshipping Allah, with connecting to another human being, and it even has a spiritual and emotional depth to it that you can't experience through the synthetic joys of pornography addiction, for instance. So I'm really glad that you highlighted that, and it's something that we should all take to heart.
1: And and just touching um, touching on the point you mentioned, pornography, and and the reason why I think, like we mentioned earlier, it's important for we as Muslims to engage in these conversations, these open and honest conversations about sex, even prior to marriage, because a lot of Muslims they will be like, okay, I'm not going to have sex before marriage because haram, but I'll be watching pornography. And they can become addicted to pornography, and then their attitudes in, in terms of what sex is, and is shaped by pornography, which we know is, is not real, and it's from a male perspective. So when they actually have sexual relations, it's, it's not satisfying. And that's a problem. So that's why, again, if if we adopt uh, an approach where we're actually having these conversations way before, again, I'm not saying at a really young age, but way before even people are going to get married, they will realise that even lowering their gaze and not looking at pornography is for their own benefit. We know there's a number of studies that have come out talking about like the detrimental effects that pornography, significant pornography use has in terms of like in one's arousal process. And I think that's important. So people realise that me not doing these acts is not only inshallah for the sake of Allah, but for my own benefit as well. And I think that's something that we as Muslim kinda fail to realise.
0: Absolutely. No, it's a really good point. So this kind of maybe connects to there's a couple of um hot topics that I wanna talk with you today about um so pornography obviously you know i don't think we need to spend a lot of time showing or or explaining how it is haram it's bad for your soul it's bad for your heart it's bad for your um your sexuality um and but it does also connect to this idea of masturbation Right, so you get a lot of young men and and even women now. They're like, "Well, this is ridiculous. How are we supposed to, you know, not be married, not talk, you know, not date, not have any relations, um, and and stay chaste until we're 25, 30, sometimes 40 years old?" I mean, the 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 marriage age is getting pushed back more and more because of the socioeconomic expectations of. You know, many many places in the world, especially in the West. Um, now, this may not impact Muslims in other countries. I don't know because um, I don't I don't live in those countries. But you know, do you find that? part of the rise of masturbation using pornography and even premarital sex happens more so with Muslims in societies where it's more difficult to get married. And so the haram is easier. And so this is what they're accessing. I mean, do you find, for instance, higher rates of pornography usage in countries where Muslims are still getting married at an earlier age, and perhaps there is more discourse around sexuality? Do you have any uh, opinions or observations on that?
1: Yes, I do. I mean, there was a study I read, I think it was a year and a half ago, and, it's, and the, the countries, three of the, I think, the top ten countries which is, which have significant pornography use are Muslim-majority countries. One was Saudi Arabia, I can't remember, I think one was Egypt, I can't remember the third.
0: Pakistan, I believe, from what I recall. And and and, the,
1: and this is the situation, again, it comes to the attitude because, I mean, there's not, not going to be a quick fix of someone getting married, I mean, because there's economic pressures, there's so, the society pressures, which... which prevent someone getting married at a young age, even though we know it's encouraged to get married at a young age, but that can't be solved overnight. But because people are adopting this attitude of, of okay, I've got these, these desires, rather than engaging in premarital sex, I'm going to engage in watching pornography and masturbating. The problem with that, and this is why I think people not only, again, just looking, saying obviously it's haram, even in the Western world, amongst non-Muslims, there's been a number of studies where people have spoken about significant after a period of time, significant por- pornography use has affected their relationships. Where they're no more aroused by a real woman they want they want they're rather you know watching pornography and that's problematic so i think when people kind of understand that then they will realize okay rather than saying because i'm not married i have to watch pornography no i'm not even going to watch pornography because in the long term that's going to do me damage as well and i think that's why we need a more holistic understanding in terms of when we're looking at the issue of pornography not just to say it's haram, but for people to understand the, the the damaging effects it can have on the person on the long run i think when people kind of realize that then hopefully they'll be less likely to kind of engage in such acts.
0: Right, because, I mean, from my humble research and, and understanding... The things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ruled as haram or evil is because it actually is bad for us, right? It's not because, you know, uh, there's any other reason uh, other than it's actually going to cause damage and harm. And I think that if we don't have deeper holistic explanations and meaningful connections as to why certain things are prohibited in Islam versus not, it's never going to really sink, sink in. Right? It's just gonna be, it's gonna be seen as, um, almost, uh, just impossible to, to, to fulfill some of these things. And this is something I hear with young Muslims. I mean, it's like, come on, how are we supposed to survive here? You know, it's like we're, we're not married. We're surrounded with sexualized societies. Half of our friends are doing it. Um, every time I want to get married there, you know, it's it, it's difficult sometimes. You don't find compatibility or the mahar is too high. And it's like we're in a really tough uh, situation, at least in, in some Western communities. Um, do you hear similar complaints in the UK as far as getting married is, is becoming more difficult for people? Yes, most
1: definitely. I think um it's it's like one of the biggest fitness that facing the Muslims, particularly in the West, or maybe even Muslims around the world, um the difficulties of getting married And I mean there's no easy answer, but at the same time I think just um we we can't say that okay, because you can't get married, therefore go and watch go and engage in pornography or premarital relations. But at the same time, even if we look at during the time of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu wasallam, um there was an example of when um, Abu Hudeifa, who was a companion but was poor, he came to the Prophet ﷺ and they said that he's finding difficulty to get married. What should he do? He fears that he's going to commit fornication. The Prophet sallam, and this is one of the beautiful hadiths. He didn't say he didn't say anything to him. And he came to him again and he, again and he's saying, what should what should he do? and the prophet replied that he said that know that the pe- the pe- the ink is dry is- what's is- what you're going to do is you're going to be just being written for you not to validate or to say that what you're going to do is is allowed but this is maybe one of the trials that you're going to face and this is something that number of the muslim scholars spoke about that not everything like of course everyone's going to have a test in the trial but sometimes i think we as muslims especially those that are struggling we want like the like, like an easy way out for for someone to say okay it's we know that you're could in a difficult situation then you can go and commit um, pornography, then you can go and watch pornography, then you can go and have illicit relations when in reality it's not allowed and for the long run it's going to do detrimental harm. But sometimes the advice that we need to, go and to give people, sometimes maybe not to say anything, but for them to realise that this is something that you're kind of going for. I know it's quite difficult to say because everyone wants a solution, an easy fix, but not everyone can get an easy fix. And another example was when the young companion went to the Prophet, peace be upon him, and he asked for the Prophet to make um, a fornication, halal for him. And a number of other companions were like, you know, how dare you, how can you say such a thing? When the Prophet, again, his beautiful response was to call him, the young man, to come close to him and asked, just ask some questions. Would you like that for your mother? And he said, by Allah, of course I would. Then he asked him, would you like that for your aunt? Would you like that for your sister and other female members of his family? In which he all replied that, of course he wouldn't like that. And he just said that the same way you don't like it for female members of your family, people don't like the same for the female members of their family. And he reasoned with him. So again, even... That understanding, that approach, that's something that even as Muslim men, that, okay, you might be struggling, but but that doesn't mean that should legit, legitimise you having illicit relations with other women because you wouldn't like if someone were to do that to, like, your daughter, your sister, your mother, and etc. So I think when people understand that, because even men that are the biggest, you know, philanderers, womanisers, whatever, with their own women folk, they wouldn't like it. So we ultimately, we know it's wrong, but sometimes we need to understand why it's wrong by trying to bring in understanding if someone were to do it to us, how would we feel?
0: Yeah, no, I love that reference. Um, It's this idea of the Prophet Saisenam striking the human heart and humanizing the situation, not judging him or, or, or making him feel like he's cursed, but really just like you said, using the principle of logic and emotional intimacy uh, to make that point. Because think about it, any guy out there or even woman who wants to do these things outside of marriage, you just think about your best friend, who's also a guy, and he could think about your sister or your aunt or your mother in the same way. And that would make you feel disgusted. So what about you doing it to someone else's family member? I think that's a wonderful example of how the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi he was a counselor, and he did have wisdom in guiding these human um, aspects of our condition with a spiritual essence, so to speak. So let me ask you this though, Brother Habib. So let's talk about just masturbation, all right? So I think it's clear that We all know premarital sex, watching pornography. These are things that run the risk of being punished by Allah. It also causes a lot of physical and spiritual damage. But some people might say, well, how about if I I can just masturbate? It's still the lesser of the two evils. Um, I don't watch pornography, but I got a release. Like if I don't, it's just really going to impact my health and my, you know, my ability to focus. Um, what have you found in your research about the positions of masturbation in Islamic fiqh?
1: Some scholars that will say because it's the less of two evils and it's not outwardly haram. Like Ibn um, Ahmad ibn Hanbal was of the opinion that it's it's not haram. So again, because there's and there's obviously some scholars that say it's haram, but obviously not the same as having fornication uh, or committing adultery. So because there's difference of opinion and I'm not like a faqir or anything like that, I've I I haven't I'm not going to say what is the correct opinion, but I can understand there's difference of opinion and, and but the person knows themselves. So if the person like you said is not Watching pornography, but it's just um, wants to masturbate as a form of release. I can understand that. I'm not going to criticize that person for doing that if I'm in, in all honesty. There's some people who might take a different opinion, a more hardline stance, but for me, that is better than the person engaging in actual you know, sexual relations with people that they're not married to. So I can understand why the person would do that.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, some people have another solution and they try to make it an Islamic one, this idea of temporary marriage. Um, In other words, you know, hey, it's better to have a temporary marriage and at least it's sanctioned rather than just have a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Um, What are your thoughts about that?
1: Oh, wow. Okay. That is a very controversial topic. And I'm glad you brought that up. I'm very troubled by that. And the reason why... Is because even when I was in Egypt and I came back, a number of brothers, when I was first able to get married, a number of brothers, and these educated brothers know the Quran inside out, well versed in fiqh, they were saying, you know, go and get, have a temporary marriage. Even though, you, even when I said I know I'm not committed because I'm, I'm going back to Egypt to these, um, to this woman, and she obviously wants to stay in the UK, they were saying it's fine as long as you don't express it outwardly that you know you're only doing it for a certain period of time. It's better than um, committing fornication or adultery. Now, my issue with this is that technically, quote-unquote, it's halal, but it goes for me, it goes against the spirit of the law. It goes against the spirit of the law, because what happens generally in a lot of these marriages is that the women aren't aware of what the man's intentions are. So he might be engaging in sexual relations for however long, couple of weeks, couple of months, even maybe a couple of, year, couple of years, and then leaves her and then goes off and does his own thing, whether he goes back to his own country, whatever. Now, I've seen a lot of women who have left the religion of Islam, it's affected their iman because of this. So... Is like you could say it's a form of spiritual abuse, and that's what I strongly go against. This type of like reason, I can understand why some men do it, but because I've seen the effects on the other side, we have a number of women who have either left Islam or stopped practicing. I can't endorse that at all. Quite prevalent, unfortunately, amongst some Muslim communities that kind of give this, and and again, it comes from this male understanding that his sexual desires or his or his sexuality is more important. The damage that he's going to do to the Muslim woman, it doesn't matter, and I think that's very problematic. That's why I couldn't really endorse that. And I'm really against that type of marriage because I think you're really abusing the religion for your own kind of benefit.
0: Yeah, and I mean, even just your explanation there and and why you don't feel very comfortable with that position. I mean, you said something that struck me, this idea of, well, technically it's halal, but it goes against the spirit of the law. I mean, I find that to be an issue that you have positions by certain imams or even scholars that say things like that. You know, it's almost like as long as you're, you are you can hide how you're um, not really going to be with them, this is okay. But I mean, doesn't that go against the concept of ikhlas, sincerity and sitq and, and truthfulness, which are... Part of Islamic character. I don't see how you can have something be Islamic uh technically okay or valid according to the sacred law, but yet again it, it goes against the spirit of the law or akhlaq of Islam. I mean, what, what are your thoughts about that? I'm
1: sorry, but by me saying it's technically halal, it's, uh, it's like in inverted comments um, quotation, not to say that it's actually halal. I believe that it's haram. But if you're looking at like, if someone were to ask, okay, did it fulfill the conditions of marriage, which a lot of you know religious like scholars are just looking at the conditions of marriage and like what it says did you have two witnesses did you have a mahar? did you have the acceptance did you have the offer because it fulfills those four conditions then they'll be like okay technically it's 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 halal when we're becoming the muslims who are not really trying to understand islam holistically we're just looking at does it fulfill the parameters of the law into the and I think that's why it's problematic. You can't prove that that's the reason why he got married, if you if you understand what I'm getting at. But if the person knows himself within his heart that he's not committed to this woman and he knows that he's just there for maybe a couple of months, a couple of years, then you know you shouldn't do that. No one needs to tell you that. But, you, but a faqir can't prove that. That's why you can't invalidate that marriage. And, and again, that's why it's something which, again, it wasn't as prevalent as it was maybe like five, six years five to ten years ago in the UK, but it was prevalent amongst some Muslim communities where a number of brothers not only in the uk was you know marrying women especially when they go abroad it was prevalent in some parts of egypt when i was studying that brothers will come and then and again you're going to you know you're 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 meeting this woman's family going and you're taking advantage because you've got money as well and i saw this a lot amongst a lot of muslims from not only from the uk but from america as well who marry egyptian young egyptian women they know they're only going to be there for a year a couple of years whilst they're doing their studies and then they'll go back and they'll just divorce them and even to get that marriage was quite difficult in the first place because they, they, they might have had some pushback from her family. But again, because of the money, they were able to, you know, give their parents or give their family something to sweeten them up. They get married after a couple of years, even sometimes she has a child with them, and they just go back to their respective countries. For me, I, again, because the you're doing so much damage, like, but again, because they're saying, oh, technically i fulfilled the conditions of marriage, but they know it's wrong. Do you, do you understand that? Because it's difficult to, to disprove, that's why I'm saying technically in the of the commas, it's, it's halal, but really and truly we know that it's haram. So I'm, I'm glad you actually said that because I, I don't want people to get the impression that I'm saying that those, those marriages or those unions are technically marriages when they're, they're really not at all.
0: No, thank you for clarifying that. And I mean, I've also counseled situations where sisters would contact me and their husbands got a second wife and they use the same idea. Right. That, well, I've, I've, they found some scholarly uh, input that says you don't have to tell your wife about your second wife or third wife. You don't have to uh, let them know because this is a right that you have from Allah. So basically, as long as you're following the fiqh process, um, it's considered legit or verified. But then for many sisters, it's the same thing as the, the man having an affair. Because he's been lying, he's been going behind her back, he's been making up stories, and you know he has a whole other family and, and, and woman um, that he's married to. So, wh- what are your thoughts about that? Because those brothers also ruining this idea of polygamy in a healthy, holistic way, which I think is very attainable and has been exemplified by people and and, and certainly some of our prophets. Maybe because
1: of the background I've come from, I've seen polygamy being practiced in, in a correct way, where the husband is very open and honest and, and with his wife and prospective wives that he's going to marry. So I haven't got an issue with polygamy and I'm an advocate for polygamy, but like the, the practice which you described, which unfortunately is prevalent in a number of um, Muslim countries and especially in the Western world, I have a problem with that as well because yes, again, if you were to go to the books, technically the man doesn't need to inform his wife, but again, how can you be in a relationship with someone and you're deceiving them? And as Muslims, that is one of the qualities which when the Prophet ﷺ was asked, can a Muslim be a miser? He said, yes, can a Muslim fornicate? He said, yes, it's possible for Muslims Muslim to fornicate. Can a Muslim steal? He said, yes, it's possible for Muslims Muslim steal. And then they asked, can a Muslim, also, oh, sorry, can a believer lie? He said, no, that's the one thing a believer can't do. So that's the essence of Islam. And, that, and that's, something again, as we as Muslims, we seem to, like, we've become, like, when I mean by people of the book, I'm not referring to the Jews and the Christians. I mean, we've become, like, we're, we're just nitpicking and we're trying to see how we can abuse the law to suit our own desires rather than understanding you know that if you're in a union with someone and it's built on like love and trust and respect how can you be lying to this person you don't need to go to a scholar you don't need to go to an alim for this you know this yourself that it's wrong and that's why i just have an issue with people that's trying to find these religious loopholes because if you want to find a loophole you can but you know ultimately it's wrong and Allah will take you to account for that so that's why i to do because it's difficult as a, an imam uh, a counselor or a faqih or anyone if you're in that situation to say to them, like, because there's nothing clear in, this, in Islamic, from what I'm aware of, in um, Islamic texts, which say that a man that, that needs to tell his wife that he's going to marry a second wife, right? So I'm not going to say that. You have to say that when I haven't found, come across anything, which does say that you need to. But at the same time, how can you be in a, in a marriage and you think that's a practice as a Muslim? You shouldn't even cheat um, a non-Muslim, let alone your wife that, that you're living with. Do you understand? So And the harm that you're going to do, we know as Muslims, we shouldn't do harm to anyone. How can you be doing? I'm not talking not physical harm, but even emotional harm. How can you be doing that to your wife, and you think that is an acceptable practice as a Muslim man? So we need to kind of understand Islam again, like I mentioned earlier, from a more holistic perspective, as opposed to realize thinking about: Am I ticking the the box of what is like halal and what is haram? So to speak.
0: Polygamy um, is a big topic uh, for a lot of people, and I think that it's unfortunately had a very bad rap, especially because of these uh, the, these misused. Processes that some of our brothers have done in the past. And um, maybe you can tell us more about healthy versions of polygamy that you've observed and witnessed. Because nowadays, I find it so fascinating. I mean, with a lot of you know certain unhealthy constructs coming from feminism women have misandry towards men there's this hate for men you know men are pigs all you guys care about is sex and you know polygamy is is backwards and you know all this stuff and it's like subhanallah you have muslims now at least you know in some parts of the world um in the west where they're more willing to be advocates for homosexual marriage but they're totally against polygamy which i find fascinating Uh, why do you think that there is this ruling for men and not for women? Because this is something that you have some modern women say, like, oh, that's not fair, it should go both ways, and if it doesn't, then the man's not allowed to do it either. Um, Can you tell us more about this idea of healthy polygamy according to Islam and how this can actually be a beautiful practice of the Sunnah and not just some backwards or hurtful uh, engagement?
1: Okay, in terms of from an Islamic perspective, we know that not only not, not only the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, but a number of the Prophets um, like Dawood Alayhi Salam, and Sulaiman Alayhi Salam, and also many of the companions, they were polygamous. They had, they had multiple wives. So from an Islamic stand, standpoint, I don't think anyone could say that um, polygamy is like a, a bad practice, so to speak. Now, even within and then there's some Muslims, especially like feminists and, and especially Muslim women will say, oh, that was then. And that was because of the time. Um, you know, because there was wars and things like that, whereas now it's not practical. Now, the reality is, and this I know some women might not like to hear this, but the reality is there are some parts of the world, and even in the West as well, in the United States and the UK, where women are more than happy to engage in a polygamous, to being a second wife or third wife. I think, and that's something that a lot of women aren't, for whatever reason, they've got their own reasons, they, they do not want to accept. But And if you were to ask, like, the women that you said, why is it fair that a man can have a number of wives, whereas a woman can't? If you ask most women, and there's been studies, which I mentioned in the book, without which I've related, um, which was conducted amongst non-Muslims, but even if you ask a lot of... Just do a sample study of people that you know. How many women would be comfortable or would, would, wouldn't mind having multiple sexual partners? A lot of women would be disgusted by that idea. If you ask, honestly, whether they're religious, not religious, whether they've got a beard down to their belly button or not, whether they're practicing not practicing, you ask a number of men, how many of them would like to have multiple sexual partners? And they'll probably if they don't say yes, they'll have a right smile on their face because they would like that. That's just the reality of the way we the way we have the way Allah has um created us. And that's something that again, that's something that the early Muslims were aware of. But again, it doesn't mean that you should can just marry as many women as you like and take advantage of them. But that's a, a desire that a number of men, not all, but a number of men would like to have multiple sexual partners, and hopefully you do within the confines of marriage. And that's not a desire for a number of women. Now because a lot of women don't have that desire how can you what i always under, to try to speak to women is that if you don't actually have that desire but a man doesn't have that desire how can you say that it's not fair for a man to have multiple women unless a woman does when for most women that's not their natural desire they they wouldn't want to have multiple women they just want a man to have one partner that's it because that's all they would like
0: right yeah, no, this is a this is a really good point. I think it's uh, we shouldn't also reduce it down to just sexual desire here. It's also about I personally believe a man does have the capacity to truly love more than one woman, whereas many women it's it's so hard for them to conceptualize that because they are wired Most of them are wired to actually only love one man because it gives them that sense of security. So when they try to reverse the psychology, it's inconceivable to them to have three husbands. So for them, it's like, how the heck can a man do this? And if he does, it means he doesn't really love me. And I think this is a really important point that no, a man actually can love you and honor you and still love another woman and honor her, which is why the verses in the Quran that talk about this say, have equity with your wives, right? And if you fear that you can't, then yeah, stick with one. One. but that doesn't mean that it's not possible or that men don't have the capacity to do it because I always hear this argument of see the Quran even says be monogamous it's like no the Quran says have equity and equity is, is based on the relationship parameters itself I mean often we take it and we think it means absolute equality right like oh if you spend you know number of days a week here you got to do it here if you buy her this you buy her that but it really comes down to the actual wife and what they want and what they feel is equitable if there's if one wife is satisfied with seeing you twice a Week, you don't have to force her to spend three days a week with you because you spend three with the other one, right? It's about the equity of of the relationship dynamics and what's the agreed upon fulfillment of needs. Um, this idea of well, since you can't be absolutely equal in everything, you're overlooking the fact that it's about equity, not pure equality, and that you can still have fulfillment and people can still be happy in these situations.
1: No, I agree. Very valid point. I agree. I agree with everything you said. I can't. But it's just one of those. It's, this is one of the topics where, as two men speaking about why polygamy is, um, like, we're never gonna win. I'll be honest with you. For women listening to it, I, I don't really talk too much about polygamy because, as a man, naturally, you know, you're coming from a male perspective and you're just looking at the benefits that is for a man, um, as opposed to like. And I can understand why most women wouldn't want to be in a, in a polygamous relationship. There are some societies, not only societies, there are some women, and I think. A lot of women themselves don't recognise this, that there are some women who would be happy to be a second wife. Now, the issue generally comes to the first wife, because generally, obviously, when the first wife gets, um, marries the husband, unless she's from a society where it's kind of the norm that a man might marry second or third, she's under the assumption that she's going to be the only wife. Now, when another woman comes on board, she, it's, like, it's like the man has done a disservice to her, so I can understand why those women have an issue with it. But there are some women who are happy to be a second wife, there's some women that are happy to be a third wife, and there are some women who are even if they get married and they're the first wife, they know there's a possibility that the man can marry again, and they haven't got an issue with it. And again, coming from a Nigerian background where it's not unusual, and that's why like speak again, I'm not saying all Nigerian women are happy with polygamy, but a number on there isn't this issue like when I hear a lot of women complaining, whether it's in the UK or America, that no woman would like to be in a polygamous relationship. And I'm thinking. You can't say that because there's women that's more than happy to be in this relationship that are living today. And to make it out as if that they're oppressed and they don't know any better. That's to me, that's quite patronising. The same way some non-Muslims speak about Muslim women as being oppressed because they're wearing a hijab and things like that. Who are you as just because maybe you are not comfortable with it? That's fine. But then to say that no woman should um, engage in such a to be part of such a union. That's that's ridiculous because there's some women who are more than happy. They've got their own reasons. And it's not just because like we hear some people say a lot, unless the woman can't um, have children, then it's, then it's a the reason why he can marry a second wife no there's there's a number of reasons, and we shouldn't limit it because Allah didn't limit didn't say this is the reason. So who's it for me or anyone else to say unless you know the first wife can't have any children or because of X or because of Z, that's the reason why a man can marry a second wife as long as he can like you mentioned be equitable amongst them, and they're happy with the arrangement. I don't see what is an issue with it, and I think we as Muslims, we need to kind of realise that just because you might not um, want to engage in such an act, it doesn't mean, and it's halal, it doesn't mean that you should forbid it for someone else who might, that might be a a more than perfect um, situation for their situation, for whatever circumstance they're in.
0: Right. And I, I mean, I would argue, you know, especially those Muslims who are advocates for same-sex marriage, you know, love is love, right? It's like all the same rules that apply to two men wanting to be together or two women to want to be together. You can't actually argue against any of those points if you're going to use it in a, in a polygamous situation. I mean, who are you to say who's going to be happy and who's going to experience love and fulfillment if, if they actually want to embark on a, on a polygamous uh, family? Right. I mean, that's up to the, the participants. I mean, tolerance has to go both ways, doesn't it? But unfortunately, it, it doesn't usually with with the politics and uh, other agendas behind the scenes.
1: So just one quick point, just adding to what you said. I think what the reason why um, people might be for same sex relations, but against polygamy, it comes down to even Muslims. It comes down to the concept of love, because a lot of Muslims, again, I think this has been adopted from the West, this understanding of true love man can only love one person, a woman can only love one person, this idea of soulmates We've adopted this from this romantic ideal from the Western world in terms of what love is. So because people have adopted this understanding of love, and I think women generally have this understanding that they only can love one person. Again, I'm not saying all women, but a lot love only one person at at a time. They assume this is the case for men as well. They can understand or accept or tolerate same-sex relations because it's just love, one person loving another person. Whereas polygamy, the understanding, again, is like, how can a man love multiple women? And I think that's, that's what it comes down to the crux of the matter is the concept of love. And I think if you were to ask people this concept of love that people have, where do you get it from? It's not, it doesn't generally come from the Islamic tradition. Because if it did, are we saying that the Prophet, sallallahu Alaihi didn't love his wives? Because, of course, we know he did.
0: Right, right. And also, of course, there are men out there that don't, they're not interested in polygamy. They're more happy and fulfilled with monogamy, right, and more power to them. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I also think that just because polygamy is allowed in Islam, it also doesn't mean that it's supposed to be easy or sisters are necessarily going to like it, right? That's fine because you're still a human being and it's not easy to be in a polygamous relationship for some people, especially if it's not done with um, wisdom and character and virtue. So I also you know, want to say that sometimes it's really sad from certain situations I've worked with. I've, I mean, I've counseled some sisters in polygamous situations and what's sad is some of the brothers who are doing this, they use the whole, again, the Islam card, right? Well, Allah said, I'm allowed to do it so you should like this or you shouldn't have a problem with this and they forget the humanistic emotional art to this that you, you can't expect that your wife is going to be comfortable with this at first, right? Especially if it's not something she's used to and it's not embedded in her culture. You can't expect a woman to be okay with this and, and it's going to take time to just right and so i think men also have to be more heartfelt in this idea of well because there's an islamic sanction therefore i shouldn't you know hear any complaining and everyone should just deal with it kind of thing but that's not holistic and it certainly doesn't exemplify the character of of our prophets that we're trying to follow
1: yeah most definitely and we even know that the prophet sallallahu he didn't marry some women because they were extremely jealous because even during his period when polygamy was accepted there's some women who couldn't handle it so that's something that I think men, we as men, we need to be more compassionate with our sisters and realise that we're living in a time, um, and especially in the West, where polygamy is not the norm. So if you understand that's the reality, and a lot of women don't, if you're marrying a woman and she doesn't think that she's ever going to be part of a polygamous relationship, I think it's best either you let her know beforehand that could be a possibility, or you don't get involved in marrying a second or third wife, because again, it can do a lot of, like you could say, spiritual harm as well to her. Not only, And again, like you said, you have to understand how she is from a human being perspective not only just like islamically it's allowed therefore i can do what i like
0: right right now one of the things that i often try to um, help some couples with i mean it depends on the couple some are more open to talk about sexuality others aren't but i think it's a very important to invest in our sexuality within marriage and this is this can take different forms, and I think that you know some people assume that there's a lot of things you're just not allowed to do between husband and wife. And from my understanding, and also from what you have in your book, according to Islamic law, there's only two things that the Prophet Sallallahu forbade. Explicitly between husband and wife. One is um, sexual relations through the anus, and second is sexual relations during intercourse during the menstrual cycle of the woman. However, you can still have other sexual intimacy uh, even when a woman's on her menses. So these are the two things that I'm aware of, which brings us to a very common question, which I also get and you covered in your book about this idea of oral sex. Um, and so there's two types. There's, of course, uh, fellatio, which is oral sex from a woman to a man. And then there's cunnilingus, which is the um, oral pleasuring of the man towards the woman's private parts. So can you tell us more about what you found in your research about how this has been addressed in Islamic scholasticism?
1: Okay, so there's a difference of opinion amongst the Muslim scholars, but generally, the, is, is, generally most Muslim scholars of the opinion that it's permissible. There are, there are some, most, so generally, like in terms of the full um, schools of Islamic law, the Hanbalis, the Malikis and Shafi'is are generally the opinion, opinion that it's permissible. I haven't really come across many notable scholars that actually said that it's haram. You find even some modern day scholars, which I want to quickly talk about, that say that even though it's not haram, it's something that is disgusting. It's something that it's an act of, like I've heard scholars say, it's something that only dogs do it, or people in the West. It's because of their culture. So maybe because in some cultures that it's not widely practiced, that's why some men will say it is why would you do that? Or some people will say, you know, the mouth is what you use to recite the Quran, you recite to eat, how can you use, you know, and it's, and again, if that's just not your what you like doing or you don't think it's acceptable, that's fine, but you can't say it's haram. And generally, even the Muslim scholars that generally are, who do not like the practice, they don't say it's haram out, out outwardly. There's very few scholars I've, I've, I've come across, whether traditional scholars or contemporary scholars, that say it's haram. And there's many contemporary scholars like Yusuf Qardawi that spoke about it. And didn't say that it's outright forbidden. Now, I would argue again with a lot of men, because even if you look at, even if we talk about sex, sex and orgasm for, for men is one and the same. And what I mean by that is if a man has sex, nine times out of ten, he's going to have an orgasm. Whereas with a woman, sex and orgasm is not the same. And that's something that I think many men do not realize. That a lot of women, even that have sex, do not reach an orgasm, which is unfortunate. Even if we just looking at through penetrative intercourse. Only 30% of women actually can attain a climax through penetrative intercourse. So therefore, what does that mean? As a man, in order to please your woman, you need to either you might need to, whether it's manual stimulation with the fingers, or you might need to engage in oral stimulation in order for her to achieve a climax. Because most women, just through penetrative intercourse, do not achieve a climax. But again, this is comes to, to to a lot of men having a lack of understanding about female sexuality and the female sexual arousal process their thing from their perspective because I'm getting satisfied so she surely should be getting satisfied some women aren't satisfied just with penetrative intercourse so again if, so for me and that's why I'm a very strong advocate for um, oral sex again if, if a man's not comfortable with doing it then don't do it or vice versa but if you want to please your wife and a number of women um, find oral sex actually more pleasurable than actual penetrative intercourse then why shouldn't you do it and again especially if it's something that's going to bring her pleasure again like I said if people have issues with it because Culturally, they find it something that is not acceptable or the women don't like it themselves, then it's fine. But to make it out as if it's a disgusting act, it's just something that comes from the West or dogs. That's wrong. That's that's not Islamic at all. That's just some people's cultural manifestations that they're uncomfortable with some practices. And this is something that is not only a recent phenomenon, it's something which happened in early Muslim communities where they spoke about, um, like Imam al qurtubi he mentioned about that. Because with the Hanbali's, there were some scholars that said that even looking at a woman's private parts, Is can cause blindness. That's what they say. There were some um, fabricated traditions attributed to Prophet, peace upon him, where he said that if you look at a woman's private parts, it could cause you blindness. So some of the Maliki scholars that were refuting this and they were saying that that this is a fabricated tradition that a man can look at a woman's private parts, he can even lick her private parts. So this is an example that is saying that it's it's perfectly permissible. Some Muslims, especially those um, I've noticed a number of Muslim scholars from. The Indian subcontinent, in in many of the books talking about sexual relations and things like that, they disapprove of this practice. They might not say it's haram, but they said that in terms of to be like um, pious and you know what's good practice and good ethics, you shouldn't like engage in such practices. But again, that comes from cultural understandings of what is so-called like inappropriate or appropriate for sexual behaviour. But even if we were to look at during the time of the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him, we know that even amongst the people of Mecca and the people of Medina. They had different understandings in terms of what types of sexual behaviour is permissible. Is permissible. So, like for example, with with Umar ibn khattab who's from Mecca, when um, he migrated with the Muslims to Medina, and then he married a woman who was from Medina, he wanted to engage in um, a sexual position where um, from behind, obviously in a not in her vagina and obviously not through her anus, but he wanted to penetrate her from behind, and she would said, no, 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 we don't do this. And he then he went to the Prophet to complain. He said, you know, he's describing that he wanted to um, to enter his wife from behind, not through the anus. But she, you know, she she said that um, that this is not acceptable practice. That he wanted clarification whether this is Islamic. And then the Prophet mentioned that you can enter your wife in whichever way you like, as long as you don't enter through the anus. So was like, even amongst the Muslims, there are different understandings of what is kind of considered to be acceptable and not acceptable. Now the reason why number of the people of Medina thought that having um, sexual relationship from behind was seen as um, not a good practice was because the Jews at the time, they said that if your child will become deformed or become blind or cross-eyed. So this was understand that they had, and they got, and they got influenced by this. So it just shows that, and again, people are products of our environment. And again, it's some of the factors, some of the external factors that kind of affect our attitude or shape our attitudes into terms what's acceptable or not acceptable practices. We've been influenced by, again, different factors, but again, Coming to oral sex or oral stimulation, if a man and the woman is comfortable with it, then it's, it's not haram from what I understand. But if a man is uncomfortable and his wife is wants it, then I think the man should step up and actually go and do the deed. I know that might sound a bit graphic, but I think, again, it comes to understanding trying to please your wife is the, more, the most important thing and vice versa. But again, if the man wants it, but the woman doesn't, then maybe the man needs to be a bit more sympathetic or and he shouldn't force her. I think that's the most important thing. It's not about having a dictatorship, but... If people are worried, thinking that this is um, un-Islamic or this is a, a practice of dogs and things like that, that's something that, which is, is not correct. So I think that's something that we need kind of clarification with, because I hear that a lot. That that's one of the questions many people ask is oral sex um, allowed because they uh, they think it's just for the West or dirty people. And again, that's, that's, that's not true.
0: Right. Now I'm really glad you brought that up because that gives us a, also the context of a certain verse in the Quran that was revealed which talked about this, right? Enter your wives in any direction that you want, right? This idea of as long as it's not in the anus, then it's you can have different sexual positions, so to speak, right? So this also comes as, circles us back to this difference between sexuality and erotology. Sexuality in Islamic law is those two things are haram, and then erotology now could probably consider some of these things like oral sex, different positions that is common in the culture or expected and so on and so forth would you say that's accurate
1: exactly that you've hit the nail on the head
0: brother habib so far it's been a very fascinating discussion on very pertinent topics here and um, i wanted to also pick your brain a bit more about this idea of investing in sexuality between spouses so one thing that i you know notice is we don't really take the time or effort or thought to really think about how do we improve our sexual relations in marriage. And I mean, my whole thing is, I mean, we're living in times, especially in the West, where society is overly sexualized. The haram is easier than the halal. We've got pornography at our fingertips. There's many men and women out there that are willing to do haram things with you, even when they're Muslim. And and then it's like, you know, we're, we're assuming that some of these one-dimensional sexual practices between Muslim men and women in marriage is really going to be have long-term sustainability, so to speak. And I always say, I mean, come on, we're living in times where we've got all kinds of dark sexual energy pulling us away from what is true, good and beautiful and halal. And we have to counter that with practices and and ideas and um, passion within our marriage to make it more fulfilling, spicy, enjoyable, and something that we actually look forward to. And I know in your book, you talk a lot about this and give real practical tips on improving eroticism in marriage. And I'd love to hear your thoughts more about why you think this is so important and what are a couple of tips that maybe you can share with the audience?
1: So in terms of, I think it's important that we keep the flame, the fire alive in our relationships. And one practical or a couple of practical um, points or tips that we can give people is to maybe to, rather than going straight to sexual relations itself, engage in foreplay. And and obviously that can come in different forms. And one of the forms, which I think is very um beneficial, hopefully, not only to the man, but to the woman as well, is to engage in sensual massages. And this is something that is, again, it's not only erotic both for the woman, but for the man as well. it's very stimulating. So uh, when, when I'm talking about erotic massages, there's a, a chapter I've got called Sensual um, Massage, a practice called Sens- Sensate Focus, which was developed by a couple of Christian ero- um, sexologists, where they spoke about the importance of both the, whether the man or the woman performing an erotic massage or sensory massage, shall I say, on their partner, but not touching any of the genital areas. Because sometimes when, especially as a man, if you're concentrating first and foremost on the, on the um, genital areas or... Or the breast for example then you're going to be highly aroused but rather you're trying to make the 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 practice pleasurable for the woman where it's not just about sex and even for the man as well because i think generally a lot of times when we think about sex we're going straight to i think in america you've got the four bases whatever you're going to the last base you're going straight to actual penetration itself when in reality we just spend more time in foreplay so and i think it's very important for the woman as well For for the man to engage in foreplay whether it's cuddling kissing um, even mental foreplay, which is again, I think that's a, a, a skill or a lost art that many people aren't aware of. So when we're talking about sexual relations, it starts even before the actual physical relation, physical act. It could be when you're at work, uh, she's at work, you're sending um, text messages. It's little subtle things, maybe leaving sweet, text, sweet messages on the fridge, but it's letting the person know that you're in their thoughts. And I think that's something that's very important. And again, that's something that obviously after a number of years of marriage, I can understand you get familiar with each other and and it's about trying to keep that sparkle of how it was when you first got married and things like that. So I think that's important. But it's having that mindset. Because if you're just thinking about sex as it's just a chore rather than a pleasure, then that's going to affect in terms of how you your intimate relations. But if you're thinking about, OK, let me make this a bit exciting. It doesn't mean you need to, you know, like do role play and dress up as different people, like some people teach in non-Muslim communities, but rather just doing certain practices that is prolonging the experience
0: right right yeah i mean it it just really helps with that whole build-up and connectivity emotionally physically before you have sexual relations and usually when you have healthy foreplay and these types of erotic um acts together the sex itself is is amplified and more pleasurable and something that's interesting that i hear sometimes from brothers in counseling is this idea of you know my wife isn't always in the mood. And I always say, but brother, she's not, she doesn't have to be in the mood every time you are, and she probably won't be because you guys are different. But a part of a man's job is also to be romantic and to warm the woman up. And most of the time, you know, women might say, I'm not in the mood, but if the man knows how to make her feel special and beautiful and desirable, within 10 minutes, she's going to be on board. Right? So, we as men also have to recognize that eroticism and also making our women feel loving and beautiful, it's going to also impact their uh, capacity and interest to have sex with us as well. And it can go the other way around, of course.
1: Yeah, I agree. And but a lot of that comes down to or stems from the, I, the misunderstanding that many men have about female sexuality. Because, like you said, a lot of men will complain that my wife is not in the mood, and it's not that. She's not in the mood. Is that like you're not able to understand?
0: Yeah, you don't know how to get her in the mood. <laughs> Sometimes and that's
1: a, and that's the reality. It's it's some hard truths that some men maybe don't want to hear, but that's the reality. It's not that your wife is not in the mood, or she's cold, or she's not. She doesn't feel like she wants to have sex. You're not doing a good job of making her feel desired. You're going straight for the actual the end game. When rather than trying to make her feel desired and wanted, then then she'll really be in the mood and she'll show you. But again, that's where the onus, A lot of the owners are. Our place on men that they need to take responsibility rather than complaining it's because of your mindset so i think it's important that men have changed their mindset and have a, a mindset where they're trying to pleasure the woman not only physically but mentally as well because we know that like and there's hadiths that mention that a woman's capacity for sexual enjoyment is nine times more stronger than a man it's one of the best feelings that you can have but again if you're a man that's very selfish and you're thinking about yourself you're not concerned with any of that as much as i'm talking a lot about men it's the same the same goes with women as well that some women need to understand what is it that the man likes as you know that most men were visual preachers so even if it's something like wearing some sexy lingerie um, perfume keeping herself in shape and I, I know it's difficult especially after some women have children but if she if she's got the mindset that no i want to please my husband then hopefully she'll you know she'll try her best to keep this up whereas if she's looking at sex as this is just something i'm doing to just to have children or just to kind of keep them quiet, then she's not going to be doing these little things to entice it. So that's why it's about having sex positive a mindset that both the man and the woman needs
0: to have, right? It's not just also just another religious obligation, right? And and that takes away that human and spiritual and emotional element to it, right? I just do this because it's my job as a as a Muslim woman, so to speak, right? So, but it's also kind of sometimes it, you know it goes the other way around where women are more sexually charged and more interested, and the man isn't. What what are your thoughts about that? Do you think this also has to do with? I mean, of course, there are a, lo- a number of reasons from what I've observed in, in um some of the cases i've worked with but what are some of your thoughts about why sometimes it's the other way around where the woman is like my man is just he's not interested he's not available and i go to him and i try to get him in the mood and he's just not that responsive
1: yeah that's quite interesting because that was one of the discussions that a number of the early muslim scholars used to debate amongst himself who has got the, st- the strongest um sexual desire is it men or women and a number of the muslim scholars were of the opinion that women have got a stronger sexual desire than, than men and there's a hadith, um, there's debates in terms of the authenticity, but there's will relate it anyway, that women have got a, a capacity for sexual relations and is 99 times more stronger than a man. But Allah has placed um, haya over her, like modesty over, which prevents her from acting out on such, on her desires like a man would. And this is what, and that, because of that hadith, that's why a number of the Muslim scholars, and as well as the, uh, the story between Prophet Yusuf, alayhi salam, and um, Al-Aziz, his wife, Accuse him of, of of trying to seduce her that, that they was the opinion that women have got a stronger sexual desire than men they they to debate it amongst themselves and then they will give examples of some women who had a far stronger sexual desire than men and that's something that are, some men some men will boast and claim that they want a woman that's you know highly sexualized or um, has got a strong sexual desire but some men are intimidated by this and again so when we're talking about sexual desire generally we make it as if men have got a stronger sexual desire than women when there are in fact some women who've got a stronger sexual desire than men and the men can't keep up and that's something that even as Muslims we need to you know need to be comfortable having these conversations and this is a reality that that, that some men that some women might want to divorce from her husband because he's not able to fulfill her desires and that's a legitimate reason for her to have a, um, to have a divorce so it's something that and it depends not all women are the same they're not monolithic nor men are monolithic but generally unfortunately we just mainly talk about as if men have a, always want to have sex when in reality that some women have got a stronger sexual desire but the, the the situations that a number of men, like you mentioned earlier, aren't able to arouse them.
0: Right. And I think it's important for the audience to remember that we're talking about general patterns and populations. We're not talking about everybody out there. There's, there's of course, a variety of, of different cases. You have women that want sex more than men. You have a lot of men who want more sex than than women. And you also have men and women that aren't that interested in sex as much as other people. So it all depends on the person you are, the person you happen to be married to. Um, and this has to do, of course, with personality and your energy. So, of course, we're speaking again about general patterns here well the last thing i can pick your brain all day because this book is really awesome and um, i recommend everyone to check it out we're going to have a link for it on the show Um, but the last thing i wanted to talk to you about brother is sexuality in jannah in paradise so some people get at islam you know from the outside of the community go like you know what's up with your religious book it talks about sex and paradise and maidens and young boys and all this stuff and of course you have sometimes you know muslim women go how come men have the the maidens of paradise, you know, what do we get? Um, especially the women who maybe have a higher sexual drive, and this is something that they also enjoy and value about their life and, and their reward. Um, why don't you tell us a bit more about that? Why do you think sexuality is mentioned in paradise? And the Quran refers to this as one of the rewards for men and women.
1: Because like we mentioned earlier, if he was, if he was going to be honest in us, especially men, what do they find the most pleasurable thing in life? Sex will probably be amongst the most pleasurable thing if men are honest, whether they're religious or not religious and also women as well, that have experienced orgasm. Many of the scholars mentioned, it's because sexual pleasures is some of, is probably the most desirable thing that a human being wants or desires in this world. Of course, it makes sense that that's something that you're gonna thrive, that you would like in in paradise. And we we as Muslims as well, we shouldn't be afraid or ashamed of our religion. We shouldn't be ashamed of non-Muslims attacking us because um, the essential aspects mentioned in paradise because that's something which even during the time of the prophet peace be upon him a number of the Jews tried to criticize him and the Muslims that how come you're speaking about eating food and drink and having sexual relations in, 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 in the hereafter because we know the Christian and their understanding of paradise is that your spirits and you don't even eat, you don't drink, you don't engage in sexual relations but from the Islamic perspective we believe that yes you're going to, eat, we'll, we'll eat food inshallah, we'll drink and we engage in sexual relations. So that's that's something that we shouldn't be ashamed of. And I just want to make that clear in the beginning. In terms of like we mentioned earlier, for most men, or I don't say most, but just say a lot of men, they have got innate desire for sexual variety. If you ask a lot of men, honestly, would they like to have multiple sexual partners? They would like that. Now, if that's something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has allowed for men to have in the hereafter, as, again, I'm, I'm speaking to men, men would love that. Now, some women, women, a lot of women, for example, wouldn't like that because they're thinking, why is it he's allowed that? But if if you ask a lot of women, like I mentioned earlier, would they want that for themselves? They wouldn't. So I can't understand that when I speak to some women, why is it that you're, you know, you have this issue with a man having multiple sexual partners when, from what many of the scholars said, that the issues of, like, jealousy that many women feel in this world is going to be removed for them. You're not going to be bothered by your husband having multiple sexual partners. So the fact that, yes, he's monogamous maybe monogamous with you in, the, in this world and then he has multiple sexual partners again for a lot of women it's a traumatic just thought but what the number of the scholars they mentioned is that the issues that women have like in terms of jealousy and things like that that's going to be removed from their heart now then the next question which you might ask or some women i'm sure are thinking is oh what about do we get hurrah now i haven't read anything it's, there's nothing mentioned in the quran i've not read anything from hadiths or scholars that mention that women are going to get an equivalent and i'm not going to sit here and say that women are also going to have Horaim, because that's not my place to say that. But what a number of the Muslim scholars did say is that the women will be, have their, there will be monogamous with their one husband, but they'll be satisfied. Again, it's, it's it's a controversial topic because, again, the time we're living in now that, you know, it's this idea of equality and some women are claiming that everything that a man's got, they should have, even if that's not what they desire. So it's it's just, again, it's, it's, it's something that I don't talk about too much because some people can't get their head around it and I don't want to cause fitness for some people. But it's something that Allah did promise in the Quran for men that they're gonna have the whole day in real, and. With women that they're going to have their husbands and they're going to be sexually satisfied
0: right well you know one of the messages i also took away from your book on that section was there are the verses in the quran that say both believing men and women you know if they're righteous if they do good allah addresses both men and women and that when they enter paradise they'll both get to have whatever they want right so so of course there is that position of yeah well even if a woman wants to have more than one husband in jannah well let's just focus on all of us getting there whether you're a man or a woman and inshallah you'll be able to have your fulfillment the way you want and some men might go well no no that's not the way it's supposed to be but you can reverse the same argument of saying well in in Jannah Allah will remove any jealousy from the man if his wife has more than one husband or she has you know her own um, sexual partners that she wants to enjoy so it almost goes the other way around and I think there is that flexibility perhaps um, in examining some of these positions of the scholars and some of those verses in the Quran again I'm not a scholar but just, just some food for thought.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I'm glad you mentioned
0: that. Yeah, and lastly, I mean, you know, this idea of attacking descriptions of paradise. I mean, I think, first of all, the descriptions of paradise are just gorgeous. And it's not just about the sex. I mean, paradise, at least the way the Quran describes it, is talking about all of the things that we already love in this world and how there you're going to get the ultimate version of it, right? So for example, most human beings love food. They love to eat. They love to share food and try different foods. Paradise talks about all these different types of foods and the ways you're going to enjoy it. You're going to enjoy different types of drinks. Um, you know. So again, food here and cuisine is something that many people, it's an art, it's a science, it's something we all enjoy. But in Jannah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is your chef, you know, you can have the best chef on earth here and you're going to fall out of your chair because the food was delicious. So imagine the things that Allah subhanahu ta'ala has prepared specifically for his servants when it comes to food and drink and sexual partners and relations. And of course, the idea of how everyone in paradise will be beautified. And Allah also talks about things like clothing and jewelry and real estate and homes and this and that. And again, it's all the same stuff that we pursue in this world. I mean, I know for a fact from, from what I know from women, Many women dress up to look beautiful sometimes because they want to get attention from men. But a lot of times, especially in some Muslim cultures, it's about showing off or showing the blessings that Allah gave them with other women. So, I mean, even this exists when it comes to what we wear and what kind of purse I have and the jewelry I have. So, of course, in Paradise, it talks about how women are going to be wearing jewelry and wearing silk garbs and they're going to be more gorgeous than the Hurra'in. So you have this appeal To both male and female psychology, if you will. And I find the descriptions of gender not to be skewed, but actually quite balanced and reflecting the human condition as we all honestly know it right here on Earth.
1: I couldn't agree with you more, brother. MashaAllah as you describe it it makes me just even want to go even more I
0: mean, inshallah, may Allah, may Allah forgive us and, and guide us and make us worthy of inheriting Allah's grace and forgiveness um, but this has been a really really interesting conversation and again you know um, it's high time that a book like yours comes out on the market and uh, I hope Muslims listening to this check it out brother Habib Akandi he has also published some other books which you can find on his website brother Habib it's been a pleasure to have you on today and, and thanks again for all your valuable insight and work thus far
1: thank you for inviting me i've really enjoyed our conversation hopefully inshallah be somewhat beneficial to the
0: business ya mean karim siraj deen here thank you for tuning in Please visit nurhuman.com to learn more about how I provide personal spiritual and relationship counsel. Please generously help sponsor the show to keep on going at Patreon.com slash Coffee with Kareem. That's Patreon.com slash Coffee with Kareem.